Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 23 to 27. You can also read along on page 7 of your bulletin. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. This is the word of God. If you're new or visiting, we've been looking at each dimension of the fruit of the Spirit. And that's been mentioned in Galatians chapter uh, 5, which was written by the Apostle Paul. And, and we finally arrived at the last one. The Apostle Paul calls it self-control. And we see the same word, self-control, uh, today in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. That word self-control in Galatians 5, and uh, the word, or the phrase rather, strict training in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, they're actually the same Greek word for what you call self-command, as opposed to having no command. If you have no command, then you're out of control. See, if you have self-control, you have command over your life. But if you lack self-control in your life, it's because you've lost command. You're, you're out of control. Why? Because something else has command over your life. And we need to hear this. Why? Because... Our world today is out of control, completely out of control. We can't control our thoughts. We can't control our emotions. We can't control our tongues. We can't control our impulses or our will, let alone our addictions and our spending and our anger. We need self-control. And so the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 tells us two things. We're going to see two things today. One, what is it? Two, how do you get it? What is self-control? How do you get it? You can't get more simple than that, right, today. So first we're going to look at what it is, self-control. Verse 24, the Apostle Paul, he, he takes considerable time to describe the type of self-control that a Christian has by likening it to an athlete that's running a race for a prize. Then he says in verse 25, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. Why? The prize. He says they, these ancient athletes, they, they do it for a crown that doesn't last. Why does he say that? It's because in ancient times, if you won, you didn't receive a, a medal, an actual medal. You received a wreath, a garland on your head. It was shaped like a crown, and it literally didn't last. After a while, it would literally just die out. But look, athletes in these games, they still went into strict training. They demonstrate a tremendous amount of self-control if they wanted that prize, if they wanted the crown. Everything in life was under control. Everything in life. They were incredibly disciplined. You know, they say Kobe Bryant, uh, the late Kobe Bryant, basketball player, right? He retired with the, uh, the LA Lakers. Kobe Bryant says that most people, they get up, most athletes, they'll get up at 9 o'clock in the morning and uh, they'll train, then they, then they recover, and then what happens is then they, in the afternoon, it allows them time to train again, 
and then they have to rest for the evening. So he realized that if he got up at four in the morning, he could get one more workout in so that at the end of an entire year, and he usually worked, they said that about, about three of the 365 days a year, he trained half the year, which is actually much longer, about twice as long as everyone else. So not only did he train twice as long as everyone else, he put in an extra workout that all the other athletes, his own peers, wouldn't. Everything in life for these athletes were under control. What they ate, when they slept, how much they slept, when they would work out, what their recreation would look like, who they would hang out with for an athlete. I mean, that means your family life, your education, your downtime, everything else became secondary because of their desire to win the crown. Now, look at the world today. If you look at the world today, we have, you can kind of divide our society into two worlds. You have the Eastern world, that's the traditional society. That's the world that many of you, many of us have come from, right? The Eastern world says what? It's all about family. It's all about culture. It's all about community. So you need to restrain your desires because you need to listen to your community. You need to restrain yourself from the things that you desire so that you can be subordinate to the community. And what happens is, as a result, we have a generation of people who become resentful uh, because they're exercising self-control, but it's really more for the approval of other, other, of other people. And so it's the approval of other people that have actually controlled them. But then you go to the Western world, the Western society, that's the world that we live in. So we, we kind of have a double whammy. We come from a particular world that's Eastern, and we live in a particular world that's Western, the Western world says that it's all about yourself, self-expression, self-discovery. And so a restraint from your desires is actually wrong because you're supposed to do what you desire. You're supposed to do whatever you want. There's no self-control. So we come from a world where self-control is, is difficult. It makes you resentful and it gives you inner angst. And then we live in a world that says there's no self-control. Not having any self-control is okay. Self-control becomes a problem in both worlds, in our lives. It just creates a, just a torment in our lives because life then becomes about self-repression or self-expression, and you're constantly oscillating between those two things, and that, that either leads to resentment of the community, resentment of yourself, maybe hating yourself when you make mistakes. But the Apostle Paul, he says that a Christian doesn't find approval in self-restraint or self-expression. He says, look at the highest level athletes around you in the world. Where does their self-control come from? Does it come from self-restraint because they want the approval of other people? No, not serious athletes. They do it to win. They do it for a crown. So anything that's not helpful in winning the crown is brought under control. I mean, isn't that the same as self-restraint, Pastor? No, and here's why. For an athlete, the desire to win the crown pushes your desire to be excellent in life. In other words, they're driven by two desires, the crown and as a result, a desire to be excellent. Self-control then comes from passion. It's not void of emotion. It's filled with emotion. True self-control comes from both passion and self-expression on one hand, that's the Western side of the world, and yet there's a self-restraint and this push, this desire to be excellent, that's the Eastern side of the world. In other words, it's about your loves. 
what you love, your passion for the prize rules and is above all your other passions, all your other desires, so that all the other desires you have become secondary and are under control. They are ordered in your life. How? Now think about this. Scripture, when you, if you read the Bible, if you've ever picked up a Bible and read it, Scripture is constantly talking about your heart. And when it does, when Scripture talks about your heart, he's not, the Scripture is not referring to just, uh, you know, your, your passions, not just your emotions. Scripture is actually talking about the center of anything that motivates you, the core desire of your heart, the rules, all the other things that you, des- that you do or that you decide in your life. In other words, what's driving what's passion- what you're passionate about, what's driving your desires, what's de- driving your decisions or your work ethic or your relationships, they all come from what your heart believes, what your heart trusts, what your heart loves. And that will set the course for everything else that you do. So think about this. If your heart, if in your heart you believe that life is meaningless, meaningless because in the end, there's nothing in the end. There's no God. There's no heaven. Then there's no reason to ever live a good life. There's no reason to be excellent in anything except that which will get you what you desire because there's no real crown in the end. There's nothing, at least not one that lasts. So life as a result will spiral out of control. So in essence, what rules your heart, what's at the center or the core of your motivation that is very critical, it's critical to your self-control. Otherwise, you're going to be ruled by competing loves and competing loves that often conflict with each other, conflict with each other. You see that? So you're going to spread yourself thin. You're going to feel overworked. You're going to get anxious at times, depressed if you fail, self-loathing if you fail, and you're going to become a slave to every desire. Unless you have that one core passion, that one core love, that one core desire, a supreme love that orders all of your other loves, you will fall out of control. You will spiral out. The great theologian, St. Augustine, He says something like this. I'm just going to paraphrase what he, he basically says something like, sin is loving things out of order. Sin is really just loving things that are out out of order. So choosing your individual desires over your relationships, choosing your individual pursuits over your family, it goes against the way God created you. That's an example. God created us in his image. And so God is so relational. Think about this. God is so relational. By nature, God is relationships. God, we believe in a Trinitarian God, a Trinity. That means there's three persons of God in one. So by nature, God is relationships. God is intimacy. God is love. And the Bible says God is love. That means that God by nature is sacrifice. God by nature is submission. You see that? The son is distinct. He's a distinct person of God. There's the individual again. But on the other hand, the son never goes against God. He's never just going to God to seek approval, disguised as seeking counsel, and then he rejects God's counsel when he doesn't like it because it goes against desires. You'll never see the son do that. So on one hand, the son is distinct. He's unique, a unique person of God. On the other hand, look at the submission of God in Jesus. Look at the submissiveness of Jesus. Look at the trust of Jesus. Look at the faithfulness of Jesus. 
Look at the sacrifice and the submission of Jesus. The cross, when you look at the cross, the cross says what? That's Jesus saying, I'm placing my love, my trust, my faithfulness in God, in community. And as a result, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to submit even to the point of death because of my trust and my faithfulness and my love. But if you put your own pursuits, that's the Western, right? If you put your own pursuits apart from community, serving others, seeking counsel from others, you're literally going on your own. It's literally you against the world. And no matter how successful you become, it ultimately leads to great anxiety, great depths of depression, to the corrosion of the soul because you're essentially just loving things out of order. Or if your relationships, if your the desire for the approval of community, that Eastern mindset, if that is the love that rules everything in your life, then you're always going to be working for approval. You're going to be fatigued. You're always going to be working for the acceptance of other people. And so you're still a slave. And you still have a disordered love. It's still going to lead you to fatigue and anxiety and depression and ruin. That's the corrosion of the soul as well. In essence, it's not about loving the wrong things. You know, when you, when you live apart from God, sin is not necessarily just always loving wrong things. I mean, it can be loving wrong things in some cases, but it's more about loving them in a way that they become ultimate things. They become supreme in your life. In a given moment, it's more important in your relationship with God. And so what's secondary becomes priority in your life. You spiral out of order. Because we're created in God's image, we need a supreme love that masters you, that commands, has command over you, and in a way that matches the way you were designed. You see that? You need a proper order to all of your loves. You need that one supreme love. You need that crown. It's the only way that you're truly going to become more self-controlled. Now, where does the Bible actually say that? Matthew chapter 22 they ask Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? What does Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. In other words, may God be the supreme love that orders all the other loves in your life. And when God becomes the ultimate love, you know what that is? You know what you call that? It's called worship. Worship is to delight in that one supreme love. If you have that one supreme love, you will delight in that supreme love when you have it. And to have that supreme love in your life is called worship. Because you're worshiping them with every faculty of your being, your heart, your soul, and your mind. Every faculty is controlled, ordered, pointed, and directed to that one supreme delight in your life because you have it. So when we sing, Jesus is mine, what are we saying? We're saying, I delight in the fact that I, I, am, I, am, I have Jesus in my life. Jesus is my love because my, I am Jesus' love. And so with every faculty of your being, all of a sudden your heart and soul and mind are just back and forth ascribing greatness and supreme delight in that one supreme love in your life. And to the degree that God is your love, the approval of God, your relationship with God, it will define your sense of worth. It will give you identity. 
It will rule your heart. And that's going to order every other love in your life. And it's going to give you self-control because your will, uh, your will, it will never waver. You will never waver. You will never be divided. You will never be conflicted because you have that one real identity, your crown. That's going to guide you and direct you and lead you. The Apostle Paul says athletes go into strict training. They, are, they have tremendous command over their lives. They are disciplined. Why? Because of the crown. It rules over their life. Now, this is anecdotal. And I got to tell you, because if I'm going to give an analogy or an illustration about Kobe Bryant, I don't think he's the greatest basketball player ever, right? And uh, I, I don't even know why I'm saying this, but it's not LeBron, and it's not, it's not, it's not going to be Kobe. But Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan, they said he would show up one to two hours early every day before practice to shoot 300 free throws, 300 free throws every day. And then after he would be done those 300 free throws, he would just stand at the free throw line and just envision 300 more free throws. And that's before practice begins. You know why? Because the weakest part of his game at one point was his free throws. And he would count up how many games that his team had lost because he had failed to hit one or two free throws. One or two extra free throws a game. He figured he would catch and win that many more games. It wasn't just to improve a few percentage points. Those few percentage points resulted in more wins and more wins, especially in those close games against the great teams. It would elevate his team, put them in a higher position to win the crown. The Apostle Paul, he uses the metaphor of an athlete. And every metaphor has limitations, right? But he uses the metaphor of an athlete. And, and we understand. We understand an athlete's drive. It connects with us. Athletes will do whatever it takes to win the crown, a good athlete, at least. Every part of their lives are disciplined, and yet, Paul says, they are going for a crown that doesn't even last. It's going to fade away. And so because their crown is limited, so is their self-control. Lots of athletes, they may be physically disciplined, but they're emotionally undisciplined, relationally poor or weak. But Paul says, if your heart is set on a supreme love that never dies, you will be incredibly ordered in every part of your life. That's what it is. How do you get it? Where do you get it? Well, what is this crown that the Apostle Paul wants us to pursue? What is this crown? Growing up, I was taught, and growing up, I believe that Paul's crown, it must be referring to salvation, eternal life, a crown that lasts forever. So if you work hard, if you command yourself, if you put yourself under strict training and discipline, you're going to earn this crown. But if that were the case, Paul, Paul's saying that he'd be working hard and disciplining himself to earn God's love, to earn God's acceptance, to earn salvation. And that goes against everything else that Paul's ever said in the entire New Testament and just about every major lesson in the entire Bible. Paul's constantly reminding us what? That salvation cannot be earned. Salvation is not based on your record. Salvation is not based on your merit or your works, but on Christ's record, on Christ's merit, and Christ's work on the cross. So you can't earn it. And yet, in verse 27, he says, I don't want to be disqualified for the prize. I don't want to be disqualified. So if the prize, if that crown is not salvation itself, then what is it? And to understand this, you've got to go all the way back to verse 23. Verse 23 kind of 
hangs at the end of a statement that Paul was making, an argument that he was making. And Paul explains this. He says, I do all these things for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. He's saying that I may share in the blessing. Remember, Paul's writing with certainty. He's writing with certainty. He's writing with the assumption that he's already saved. He's doing it for the sake of the gospel. He's already been saved, and he wants to share in the blessings. He already knows he's loved by God. He already knows he's saved, and so he says that the great passion in his life is the gospel that he may share, that he may share these blessings with others. That means there's something about the gospel that Paul enjoys so much, that he delights in so much, that he treasures so much, that he says, I don't want to enjoy it alone. In order to complete my delight in this, I need to make sure that other people experience what I am experiencing. He's not saying he wants other people to just experience salvation. Because he's not saying that even about himself. He already assumes salvation on his, end, on his end. He wants people to enjoy and experience the blessing of that, he says. He doesn't want people to just go to church. He doesn't want people to just get saved. That would reduce this entire passage to evangelism. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I want to participate in the gospel. I want to demonstrate the gospel. I want to model the gospel in my life that no matter who, whether they are Jews, whether they are Gentiles, in other words, whether they are religious or irreligious, the Jews were religious, the Gentiles were known as irreligious. So whether you are religious or whether you are irreligious, whether you are churched or whether you are unchurched or dechurched, anyone who sees my heart will see that the gospel is real, will see that the gospel is powerful, We'll see the beauty of Jesus and the love of God and experience this amazing joy and the blessings of it. And I am supremely devoted to this. It disciplines my life and my conduct and controls how I behave around all different types of people. He says to, in verse 23, prior to verse 23, he says, to a Jew, I'm a Jew. To a Gentile, I'm a Gentile, right? He says, to a Jew, I'm a Jew. I don't want to lose Jews. To a Gentile, I'm a Gentile. I don't want to lose Gentiles. Notice the Apostle Paul, he doesn't say, I'm going to train my preaching. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, I'm going to train my debating skills. I'm going to, argue, I'm going to learn how to argue better. I'm going to fight people. That's not what he says. he says. He doesn't say, well, I'm going to train my pastoral skills. I'm going to be a better counselor. I'm going to be a better a presider up front. I'm going to, in the, better, in the more public parts of my life. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying he wants to be a better performer. Some of us are like that. We're great on Sunday while other parts of our life are just out of control. Paul's goal is not to be a great evangelist. Paul is a great evangelist because people saw how much Paul's life was consumed by the gospel as his supreme love. What is it about this gospel that he is so supremely dedicated to it? Some of us are more interested in basketball than we are in the gospel. That's why your evangelism stinks. Some of us are more interested in wealth and money than we are in the gospel. So no matter what comes over your mouth, it's ineffective. You understand? Some of you are more into being a leader in Christ's church than being a lover of Christ himself. You'll never have an ordered life that way. And he, no surprise, people already know. People see it. 
Some of you have really ordered finances, really ordered jobs, really ordered homes, but your worship and your community, even the church, it's secondary. Verses 26 to 27, he says, I'm, I'm not, I don't run like a man that's running aimlessly. I don't beat my body, I beat my body and I make it my slave, he says. I mean, Paul's not saying he literally beats himself. Remember, he's using an athlete metaphor. Athletes train until they want to give up. Their body, their legs are about to give out, you see? Their body's about to just shut down. They are in great pain, tremendous agony. There's blood and there's sweat. Sometimes they are in tears because of their agony. Paul's saying that the journey of life is like a race. It's hard. It's incredibly hard. There are lots of turns, lots of ups and downs. There are lots of times you just want to give up. You want to let it go. Your heart is literally just pounding and, and, and you're about to explode. But you're going to do whatever it takes because you want that crown. So what is Paul's crown here? In order to understand what Paul's crown is, let's look at what Jesus' crown is. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, the author says that life is like a race. Life is like a race. But here's the secret, he says. In Hebrews chapter 12, the author says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us. How? He says it. it's right in your call to worship. He says it. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The author of Hebrews is telling us what Paul's saying right here. That if you, you want self-control, you want self-control to run this race, you want self-control to finish this journey, this life, you got to look to Jesus. Jesus Christ, he came down. He ran the race. And he ran that race well. In fact, it was so, he ran it perfectly. From start to finish, he ran it perfectly. He is the author, the, our champion, and he is the perfecter. The actual Greek word there, he is the finisher. He finished that race. He ran that race all the way to the cross. Jesus endured every pain, every suffering. He endured that race all the way to the cross. So at Gethsemane, the garden of Gethsemane, he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He's saying, I'm in agony. I'm in tears. I want to give up. My heart is about to explode, he says. I am dying, I am in agony. I mean, we feel that our hearts are about to explode sometimes because we have these heartbreak experiences in our lives, but nothing, it would be nothing compared to what Jesus Christ experienced. Jesus Christ agonized. I mean, Jesus' heart, he broke completely on the cross physically and cosmically. Physically, they literally beat him. Paul says, I beat my body. That was a metaphor. Jesus, they literally beat him. His heart literally exploded. They punctured his, his chest with a spear. You understand? But cosmically, as Jesus Christ was dying on the cross, 
The wrath of God is pouring out on him for our sins, as a penalty for our sins. And he, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, this is the ultimate agony. This is the ultimate heartbreak. Jesus' heart is literally being torn apart because God was at the center of his motivations. God was at the core of his life, and yet now God has abandoned him. And so he's forsaken. He has been disqualified from the ultimate crown. That's the crown of life. And Paul says, man, I beat my body. He's actually saying, I discipline myself to share in the blessings of God. The blessing, yet for Jesus, they literally beat his body. And if you look to Christ, he was self-controlled all the way through. Even as he was dying, what was he modeling? Jesus Christ was still modeling the love of God. Jesus Christ was still modeling the forgiveness of God. Jesus Christ was still modeling the faithfulness of God. Jesus was reciting scripture in Psalm 22, which ends joyfully in the light of God. So there he was, administering, he was, he was modeling joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. All the fruit of the Spirit, you see that? All those dimensions found in Christ. And yet, this wasn't a good time for Jesus. He was sharing. We get to share in the blessings of the gospel. Why? Because Jesus absorbed the curse. The good news is good because he received all the bad. Jesus Christ received the curse because, so that we could receive the blessings. Jesus experienced the ultimate agony, separation from God, so that all of our agonies get now reduced. We can actually reduce them. I don't want to denigrate anyone's suffering, but we can actually reduce the lives that we live to many agonies compared to what Christ suffered for us on the cross. Paul says, I do it for a crown that lasts. Now, if Jesus Christ was willing to give up the ultimate crown, the presence of God, his crown. If Jesus Christ would be forsaken and he chose this, what other crown would be worth that agony? What other crown would be worth giving up his life, being beaten in his body, being cosmically absorbing the beating of God? To come down and suffer. I mean, what joy, what crown did he pursue that he didn't even already have? He already had the ultimate love of the Father, the glory of the Father, the love of God, but he gave it all up for what? And the answer is you. You were the crown that he was pursuing. Jesus' love for God ordered all of his other loves to the point where he was so focused he was so self-controlled. He was quoting scripture even as he was dying on the cross. That's the faithfulness of Jesus. And he did it to gain the one thing that he didn't have in heaven for the glory of God. He wanted to gain you. You were his prize. The church is Christ's crown that you would be able to share in the blessings that he had. And so, because we are able to share in the blessing that Jesus had, and Jesus shared in the curse that we had, that's the gospel, that became Paul's crown, to experience that love and the presence of God 
and the faithfulness of God. Jesus Christ is the only person who ever ran this race and actually deserved the ultimate crown. He actually deserves salvation because he's the only one. Jesus is the only one that truly loved God with all his heart and soul and mind. We are the ones that are disqualified. But even though Jesus ran that race perfectly, what crown did he receive? On the cross, he received a crown of thorns, the curse. And when you see Jesus surrendering the crown of life, so we could have the crown of thorns, the crown of life. And you see him surrendering that for a crown of thorns for you. Then Jesus Christ becomes your ultimate crown. And you will run the race to share in the blessings of the gospel so that others can experience the delight that you have, the experience of the gospel that you have. Look at the beauty of Jesus. Look at the love of God. Look at the self-control of Jesus. Look at the faithfulness and goodness of Jesus. Look at the kindness and patience of Jesus. Look at the gentleness of Jesus. Look at the peace and joy and love of Jesus. If the gospel is beautiful to you, you would want other people to experience that delight that you experience in the same way that you would want them to enjoy a nice restaurant or watch a great movie or hear that one incredible song or read that one important book because you desire to share with them in the same beauty. In fact, the very act of seeing someone else enjoying what you enjoy completes your joy and completes your delight. When you realize that you are his crown, that will master you that will captivate your heart. It's gonna bring you to worship, which is really what we're gonna do in responding in song, because Jesus Christ becomes your identity and your sense of worth. It's gonna order all your other loves. It's gonna make you whole. It's gonna make you, it's gonna to bring together all the dimensions of your life and order them under your love for Christ and his gospel. It's gonna unite your life. It's gonna integrate your life, and that's what's gonna give you integrity in your life because you are mastered. Faith, you know, is not having no master. It's not having no master. A lot of people, they come to the gospel and they say, oh, now I can just live any way I want. Faith is not having no master. Faith is having the right master, having the one supreme love that's gonna master over all the other loves in your life. That's my prayer for you, Metro. Let's pray together.